This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, my name is Danny Arps, and what I love about the real estate business is the idea of reuse and transformation. I love the fact that it allows you to take an existing space and and transform it for the ideal space for the end user. Let's talk startups. What comes first? Does culture drive design or does design foster culture? Coming up, you'll hear from a design expert on how startups can approach their new office space and how they should curate a space that is functional while supporting productivity, retention, and community all at the same time. She will cover the debate of work surfaces versus desks, creating spaces so people can work where they are the most productive, and the nature of tertiary space. Plus, the balance between aesthetics and personality when looking cool might not make sense for the business model, and what math and music have to do with office design. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. Hi, Danny. Thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You've designed spaces for startups such as Venmo, SeatGeek, and, and many others. How do you begin that inspiration process to help design a space for a, for a startup? Sure. I mean, it's kind of going back to my, my training in school. There's, there's phases of design. Um, of course, you want to initially start with a concept, but in reality, it's more like, you know, meet with the client, discuss what their needs are, discuss what the programming is, um, think about their branding, and then kind of go back and do space planning to figure out how you can fit all of their needs in whatever space that they found. And then I like to kind of layer in the concept on top of that, like weave in their brand, weave in an overarching story to tell, you know, what's important about what their company is. And how involved is the company in that process versus you guiding them? Um, I mean, I would say they're they're heavily involved just in terms of like the programming aspect because I can't tell them what their company needs. I can't, you know, I mean, I have notions based on experience, but essentially you want to meet with them and talk to them about how many programmers they have, how many coders they have, um, like how their what their company culture is. Do they want to have an open office plan and and my job is to kind of guide them in saying like this would make sense for you or this wouldn't or how do we design it so that you can essentially have what you want but also what you need just one thing to to kind of point out is if you look at any of the spaces that you've designed for the companies i mentioned they look they don't look like a traditional office, right? It's not a bunch of gray walled cubicles and maybe some like inspirational posters on the wall. They've got a certain kind of feel to them. So is that a new direction in designing offices? The idea that they have a a certain sense or kind of vibe to them versus what I think many people would think is a, you know, quote unquote, traditional office of gray walls and cubicles? Sure. I mean, that's 
that's one of the most fun and interesting aspects about designing for a startup is that, yes, technically it is a, an office space. It's a corporate office space, you know, um, but the allure of startups and why people want to work there is because it's not traditional in the way that it's laid out or the colors or how the space is used. People often, you know, work, you know, 12 to 16 hour days. They're there yeah. more more often than they are in their own homes. So the way it's designed is that it has to kind of account for that. It has to be comfortable. There has to be many different types of spaces to use besides your desk. Um, just because studies and research have shown that like productivity is enhanced when you can kind of not be so stagnant. Yeah. And so startup companies really want their employees to be happy yeah. in their space and also productive in their space. So and what are some of those trends, if you will, that you're seeing now that are enabling that kind of happiness in an office? Sure. I mean, we we all know and discuss the trend about open office, which I think is being modified somewhat and it should be because I think open office is a great concept for certain companies. Yeah. When it when it's a smaller company or when you have a big enough space that allows for acoustical barriers not to be such an issue. That is one trend that I'm definitely trying to kind of steer my clients away from if it doesn't make sense. Because there's been blowback against the kind of Absolutely. open office environment. Yeah, right? because it looks cool, but it doesn't suit most working conditions. It's too loud or It's whatever. too loud. It's too quiet. You know, we have sales team working next to coders who have opposite needs. Um, but also just the idea of, you know, tertiary spaces, like living rooms, essentially, within an office or quiet nooks or phone rooms, just the idea that you balance work area versus uh, the kind of like temporary tertiary spaces. And what research has been done you know, from your studies and from your experience uh, of how much time people are spending at their desk versus away from the desk? Like you mentioned 12 to 16 hours a day. You know, how, how are those different spaces consumed? Um, I would say it it's definitely kind of a balance and like I would estimate 50-50 just because it depends on what type of work is needed. Um, if you are a coder, for example, you need to be at your laptop. You need to be able to have some sort of work surface. So that doesn't necessarily need to be at your desk. It could also be like on a, on a sofa and like a living room setup. Or, you know, if you're the sales team, you do need to be on the phone literally all day long. And so, yes, you can work within your own grouping of people who are also on the phone, so it's not an issue, I don't know, delicate conversation, then you'd ideally want to be like in a phone room. And so the idea of balancing how many people have access to those spaces versus their desks, their work surfaces, is kind of like the the problem-solving issue when you're approaching design. I'm curious about, like, you know, the the, the idea that people are not going to be at their desk you know, 100% of the day, and they're going to need these kind of alternative spaces to be productive in or happy in or what have you. Like, I'm curious where this all came from. Because if you think even 15 years ago, um, this idea didn't exist, it seems. At least, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. There was the kind of traditional office, and people sat at their desk, and they went to the cafeteria, and they got lunch or whatever. But what do you think is driving a lot of this kind of thoughtfulness around how space is utilized in offices and, and, you know, in startups and otherwise? Um, I think there's several different aspects. You look at like Facebook and Google and all those 
kind of huge businesses that came around in like the 2000s and they really changed the landscape in office design in general and also you think about when the economy went under in 2009 and everyone got used to kind of doing all these freelance jobs mm. and so now we're kind of in a freelance economic stance where no one not no one but like more people are just kind of working for themselves and working from cafes and working from right. co-working spaces. And so in order to kind of lure those people into your, you know, permanent office, you kind of have to recreate and that work aspect of having these different environments to work from. And I just think right now there's this whole push towards, um, you know, these communal spaces and having these kind of backdrops of like a cafe setting. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just kind of, this is how people work. And if you as an employer want to get the best people, then you're going to kind of want to be in line with how people like to work. Yeah. But do you think that's a function of that's what people wanted? Or is there a trick to it where if you feel like you're at home, you end up never leaving? So are they more productive because it's just like you have great space to work in? Or are you more productive because you're almost being tricked into being there longer because you feel more comfortable there. Yeah, I mean, I think that those are both accurate statements. I mean, if you like where you work and you want to be in a space that makes you feel good about, you know, being there, you're going to stay there longer. Um, I think people like to work in cafes because they like the ambiance. Um, so why shouldn't that kind of occur in your, your own office where, I mean, that's why you see a lot of trends where people have, you know, catered lunches every day or, you know, free coffee or cold brew as part of the company culture. It's just like, if you, if your space makes you feel welcome, you're going to want to stay there. You want to work longer. You're going to feel more productive. You make a great point that in a lot of that started with Google, at least in my purview and what you were saying before, a lot of it started with Google in the, in the early 2000s, them trying to add those types of amenities that at first were like, this is an amazing office. You get massages, there's uh, there's food and et cetera. Those things that uh, at first were, were looked at as benefits to the employees. And then there was some of the blowback around, oh, they're just doing it to Tom's point to keep people at the office all day and, and all night. Um, and do you feel like that blowback has um, you know gone away in a bit where the idea of amenities at the office, the spaces that make you want to stay there, uh, become a little bit more the norm? Or do you still hear some of that resistance to creating spaces that have the perception of wanting to keep employees there for 20 hours a day? Well, I mean, I guess maybe just to kind of step back and quote, like, trick people to work. Nobody, nobody can even really be tricked into working. But I think the idea that employers want to account for like keeping their employees happy, yeah. you know, that's the, that's the ideal, right? So I would say that it's not so much blowback anymore. It's, it's almost kind of expected. You know, there's certain amenities that you need in order to attract the most high profile people to your company. Um, and I don't think these expectations are bad, but it's more about work-life balance and people are understanding that they're going to be there all day long. So you know, there has to be some sort of design element and culture element to account for that. You know, you mentioned something that I was just thinking about, the idea of the culture element. So we talked a lot about the design, but I'm curious how you think design and culture connect such that we've talked about creating spaces that create opportunities for, um, you know, feeling good. How does the, the design intersect with the culture of a company and fostering a culture that companies might want to have? 
Sure. I mean, I think it plays into it 100%. It's just like um, for SeatGeek, for example, they are all about events. You know, that that's what their app is. They're it's, a ticketing know, platform it, to buy tickets to events. Yeah, ticketing it events like you know games or concerts or what what have you so the i we played into that aspect conceptually by having 30 foot stadium seating in the space and having this communal area that literally kind of divides programming needs so you would have like the people who need certain um like acoustical needs on one side and then other on the other side and then middle they meet so it's just like that that design element actually guides and speaks directly to their company culture yeah and in terms of culture, you know, we've talked a lot about startups and, and uh, a lot of your experience has been designing for startups that are proactively thinking about culture and design and the intersect. Are, are you seeing similar trends for larger companies, kind of the Fortune 500s that are uh, kind of trying to make similar design changes? Absolutely. Um, I've, I've had clients who kind of requ- who are not startups, but request a startup look yeah. because they understand that that's that design is what's trending. And that's, again, what's pulling the most high profile employees. You know, people have to understand that a well-designed space is, is a perk and that people are actually looking for something that is spectacular and that's productive and that's comfortable and that's beautiful and that they want to stay there. Because again, like the hours that you're going to spend there are, are the majority of the day. And so companies that are not startups, they still want to feel like and have that look of a startup. And what aspects of you know generational change you know factors into this? Is is it a function of uh, the companies being mindful of design and culture, or is there you know a generational you know expectation change? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, I think it's kind of. That it, it, yeah, I guess it is a gener- generational change, but it's, you know, it's like, you know, millennials kind of expect a certain look. And it's just like, just with any kind of norms and generations, you have to kind of account for what makes people more productive and what works in an office setting. So, I mean, I think it's been a slow change. I think that it makes sense. Um, but yeah, the the reason I asked that is because we we previously had a guest on that was focused on student housing and the the layering in of design and amenities into almost more of a, a luxury hotel experience mm. for for students uh, compared to the you know the you know the dorms that you know I experienced in in my college years. So I'm curious that if the people that are you know the the next generation coming out of college that are used to more amenities, they're used to more of these communal spaces. I'm curious you know, if, if that might be driving, you know, some of it on top of, you know, more in-tune startup culture that's aware of their productivity and their culture. Yeah, I mean, perhaps, because that's interesting you say that, because most startups actually, at least in the past, I don't know, five to ten years, they had almost the opposite expectation where, you know, they would just have like bean bags, and as long as they had bean bags and a ping pong table, it didn't. It didn't really matter what the space looked like. You know, they had to be scrappy. They didn't have huge budget budgets, but you know, it still kind of felt almost like a dorm room, and they were just like at their laptops, and that was kind of like the cool aesthetic. You know, to just kind of look like like a scrappy startup. And I think as the years have gone on, 
uh, people are realizing how important it is to have like all these amenities that you discuss. And now that's starting to become the trend and the expectation. Um, but it, but it also has value. You know, people are seeing how much more productive it, the environment is for their employees. You know, that's an interesting point about the beanbags and, and foosball tables and ping pong tables, because you see that and that becomes kind of the, the expectation slash the, the look. Um, but we're talking before about culture. You know, from my own experience, I, I used to work for a large Fortune 100 company, uh, and this is in the mid-2000s. They started to redesign the space to have the kind of open floor plan, you know, knock down the cubicle walls and the like mm-hmm. and do open floor plan. Um, and they uh, they said, we're going to put Nintendo Wiis in the <laughs> common areas. We're going to put a ping pong table. Um, and it looked beautiful. And it looked like this is an inviting space to work. And yet, no one ever used any of those things because it was still, you know, giant Fortune 100 company culture. And so it was it was kind of funny to see, and I'm curious if you have thoughts on this, companies trying to do things the right way and kind of bring design to their space, but it ne- wasn't necessarily pulling them over the line of cultural change. Right. I mean, it, the, well, that's, <clears throat> that's the thing. It has to make sense for their culture. If they're not, if that's not part of who they are, then you shouldn't add it, right? I mean, like, there are ping pong tournaments within certain startups. Like, it's a thing. Yeah. So it makes sense to have these in their space. They blow off steam. They have they practice, you know, after work hours or during certain breaks. <laughs> There's space, spatial needs that account for that, like, acoustically. But if it's not part of your actual company culture, then it doesn't make sense to add them. Do you think that design can pull culture with it? And, you know, focusing first on redesigning a space can foster the kind of culture that, let's say, a startup has? Um, or does it have to start the other way around that you have to kind of start with your culture and design space around it, but you can't really affect culture by changing design? Yeah, I mean, you have to, it has to be woven, right? What do you, what as a company are you trying to uh, create? Like what, what is the point? And that should affect the design of the space. You can't kind of just plop something in and expect people to use it when they never used it before and it doesn't make sense with the industry that they're in. So I think it definitely has to be like kind of at the same time, figuring out where you want your company brand and your company culture to go and then having the spatial needs that account for it. Yeah, this is this is all great so far. And, and coming up, we'll go a little bit deeper into how you think about design, how you design those spaces, and where you think the industry is, the, the next next wave of that change is going to occur. Uh, but first, before we uh, we get into all that, uh, you know, as a tradition on the show, you were kind enough to bring a snack to uh, <laughs> allow us to break bread and, and share a little bit. Uh, you know, what, what did you bring for us to share today? Um, I brought some organic dark chocolate, 85 percent nice. um yeah it's delicious slash really intense <laughs> <laughs> is is that emblematic of uh you know a lot of people bring bring snacks that are you know representative of their personality are you super intense is there something about this chocolate that drew you to it um well i love the fact that it's good for you i've been trying to be like super healthy in the past few years yeah. um so actually dark chocolate is very good for you, but it also kind of gives you a jolt of energy. Um, so you take it in small amounts. And because I don't drink coffee, I'm a tea drinker. Yeah. It gives you like a jolt of energy. Um, but it also kind of like, I used to have a crazy sweet tooth. Actually, I still do. So this is like my 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 cheat for that. But also I feel like I'm not being too bad. You're tricking yourself into. Yeah. Like it's still chocolate. 
A little bit of a weaning off process. Exactly. From the heavy heavy duty suites. Yeah, so we'll we'll uh, we'll take a try and uh, just a little bit at a time though. (laughs) And uh, we'll we'll be right back, uh, fully caffeinated. (laughs) Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's Smart Buyer Commission Rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's previewapp.com backslash buyer. So, Danny, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the actual design process. You know, someone has been, you know, their company's been working out of a co-working space. They've, you know, raised the money. You know, they've grown. They're ready to go out and build their own space. Walk us through that process. How do you begin that process? Sure. Um, so the design process is broken down into phases. You have your conceptual phase. Then you have your programming phase, and you have your construction documentation. Um, And then it's kind of mixed with uh, like purchasing and then installation. So believe it or not, the conceptual phase, the actual quote design of any any process is very small. It's like 10% of the entire process. You know, when you're thinking about you know, the story you want to tell and like, you know, the fun part where there's customization and you're meeting with the client and discussing like the the overarching concept of the space. That's kind of like the smallest part. The rest of it is mostly like project management. And so after you've conceptualized something beautiful, you've consulted with the client, you come back with design drawings and you present with the floor plan and, um, you know, layout options you go you go back after like the final decision is made and then you kind of get into the documentation of the actual design so now you make your designs into like a real space and that's like very technical um construction documents where you're kind of noting uh measurements of partitions and custom um furniture drawings furniture line drawings i love to do a lot of custom furniture um and then, you know, set that off to the architect where he works on or he or she works on electrical plans, <clears throat> re- reflected ceiling plans, HVAC plans, things that people look at and they're like, what is this nonsense? It's I mean, we can understand it, but it looks a little bit crazy. Um, <clears throat> and then you get into like the purchasing of everything that you've designed, like furniture, flooring, lighting, meeting with artists, if if that's part of the concept to do something Um customized to the space. I love working with artists to do custom things. I mean, again, I'm going to bring up SeatGeek again because like that was one of the most custom projects we've done, but I've also worked with First Round and we had artists come in and do artwork that was just particular for their space. Um, But then after everything is ordered, then it's managing the whole construction process, making sure that everything matches what you've actually designed on site and that can take it takes a while. I mean, for startups, 
spaces particularly, it's kind of more expedited. Typically, my projects are like four to six months, which is kind of unheard of. If you meet with the designers, they're like, how can you have a space designed and installed and completed in that time? It's like, that's because that's where the industry is going. So you kind of have to meet needs if you want to like stay in the game. But um, after everything is ordered, the space is completed, then it comes installation of all of the furniture, plants, artwork, and such. And what so. is the normal timeline? So four to six months is really fast. Very what is, fast. <laughs> what is normal, so to speak? Um, like a year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is a pretty involved process. It's actually really interesting to hear, as you said, that, you know, the design, which is what we kind of think about when you're making these cool spaces, is actually just a, a minority part of the process. Mm-hmm. But what is the right stage at which a company can go through this you know, rigorous process to design their own space to spec. Um, you know, you think about the different stages of companies. There's the working in a coffee shop. Maybe they graduated a co-working space. Many of them eventually they get their own offices and they do whatever, you know, whatever it looked like from the previous tenant. This is this is like a next phase after that. And like what what falls into the customer base there? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting and fun because I've I've worked at, I've worked with companies at different phases and just like the, the way that, that startups work is that they grow so fast. And so um, when I did initially start out, like most of my clients were probably like series A, but when you want to have like a fully professionally designed space where you can actually, you know, order those items that have a longer lead time, because even in the furniture industry, like they're, they're understanding that, that the industry is moving towards a more expedited process. But the tradition is that you would order an item and then it's like six to eight weeks, eight to 10 weeks, 10 to 12 weeks. And that was standard. So it's just like if you and, and the thing is, like those those products happen to be more unique and more beautiful and more well made, but they take much longer. Mm-hmm. So if you want like that kind of that's that level of design, I would say if you're like series B, maybe is when you should kind of reach out to hiring like a professional designer at that level. However, you can still kind of, you, you would just have like a different type of design if you were a series A, you know? It would be more like sweeping sweeping design movements that are not just kind of at a granular detailed level. It's just like more like you focus on one area or one room and the rest is kind of more so that it it's a, a workable space. And so these, you know, series A and series B, these are the stages at which a company is kind of Growing from very early stage, raising some money from professional investors, venture capitalists, Series A, you know, you might be still a relatively small company raising your first round of a few million dollars, which is presumably supposed to invest in growth of the company. So have you heard any um, kind of debate around is design of a custom office the right place to put, you know, a good chunk, what I assume is a good chunk of the money into your office as opposed to, let's say, hiring 50 more people over the next year? Um, definitely, because you, without having a professional designer to consult with on that layout, how can you have 50 people in a space that you don't know if it it fits properly? You know, how can you have 50 people at, you know, three foot wide desks, you know, they're going to be miserable there, and they're not going to want to stay there. So it's like, you may hire all these people, but you're not really investing properly because they all leave because the space is not comfortable and yeah. the, and they can't get work done. This kind of goes back to our comment earlier about our conversation earlier about the design and the culture kind of intersect. And mm-hmm. and in a way, I guess you can kind of say this investment is in the culture and the people just in a in a different way than people might normally think. Right. You could almost look at a well-curated spaces as, as a recruiting tool as, as well. Absolutely. 
And that's absolutely what happens. I've, I've had clients say exactly that, that they will literally, before they even start the interview, they will take their client through their space and say, this is where you, you could work if you decide to work with us. Um, so it's definitely a tool. And you, you mentioned, you know, SeatGeek a, a few times earlier as far as it was one of the most customized spaces. Um, you know, looking back over some of the designs you've done for different companies, what are what are the ones you're most proud of or, or the most, uh, you know, cutting edge that really pushed your creativity to the limit? Sure. I mean, there's so many and I, I hate to kind of pick and choose because I've, I've had the pleasure of working with so many amazing clients. Um, but Eligible API in Brooklyn, they, they, I mean, first off, the space that they found, it was stunning. It was 360-degree window views, and it's right in uh, Williamsburg. And it was just a complete empty shell. So it's like, you know, SeatGeek was great, but we had to do a, a lot of demolition because it was several offices that we had to combine. Whereas Eligible was a 10,000-square-foot space that all they had was an elevator vestibule in the center, and then the rest was, like, windows on all four walls. And so that, that again, was, like, a very custom space that was clad in whitewashed wood. And um, we customized these uh, these glass partitions with opaque glass as dividers and, and writing surfaces and, like quiet nooks and nap bunks with a ladder. I mean, it was just like we kind of had the freedom to kind of just go crazy. The the founder there, Caitlin Gleason, she's lovely and wonderful. And she just was kind of just like, I'm just going to trust you to do what you do. And just like we have a really expedited, expedited lead time. But it was almost like a fun challenge. Um, it was definitely a fun challenge. So that was one that I just had a lot of fun with. Day One Agency, they're not technically – I mean, I guess they are kind of a startup. Um but they're an advertising agency. And again, they I was able to use my my Danny lounges, which is a, a chair that I designed, and I had an artist come in and graffiti on them. Um so Danny lounges? Yes. Yes. It mess again, that's something else that I'm also have been working on for the past year. Or so oh, really? Yeah. But those were actually that those chairs that I designed, the Danny lounges, and again, I just had to like name something really quick because I was like looking to get them um uh, patented. Uh, and I was like thinking like Eames Lounge, well, they even named it after their last name. So let me do that. Um, but essentially that was a chair that I designed during my thesis when I was at school. And then I actually got to use it for real in my spaces because startups are like, it just made sense. Um, but how again, would, how would you describe the chair? It's, I, it, I like to call it a conference room on wheels because it's a mobile chair that has very high back and thick foam, which has acoustical qualities. And it's customizable in that I've had white uh, writing surfaces integrated into it, chalk surfaces integrated into it, or logos. First round had their logo on there. Um, and day one agency had their graffiti artists on there. So just products where or projects where I'm, I've just had the most freedom. And the clients are just like really trust me to do what I do, but just for them. So we, when we were talking about different stages of companies and when's the right time, I guess I'm, I'm curious about if the design process changes 
four different stages. Um, and one thing that I have a, a friend who's an organizational psychologist, and he once described to me in an interesting way that the culture of a company is vastly different for the founding team versus when it's a 10-person company, and then at 30 people, and then 100. And there are these kind of evolutionary steps of, of the company and the culture and how the teams engage and work, et cetera. Do you find that there are you know significant differences, noticeable differences at companies of different stages like that? Yeah, I mean, when it's a small company, when they're just starting out, it's just like they're defining who they are. They're defining what their culture, what their culture is, and what they want it to be. Versus when it's you know a hundred person company, they they know who they are and they they know exactly what their team needs based on the the years that they've been around. So it's kind of like when it's a smaller stage company, you're kind of helping define that with them versus kind of meeting their needs when they're already there when it's larger. Interesting. In addition to, obviously you mentioned the, the Danny lounges. Um, if someone walked into a space that you had worked on, do you feel you have a characteristic in your design or some th- like signature you place on a space that someone walks in and be like, oh, this is a, a Danny Arp space? I think so. I mean, I've actually had... Um, Vendors that I've worked with, like, text me being like, oh, did you do this office? And I'll be like, either yes or no. They're like, because it looks like a lot like your work. So I don't, I can't quite put my finger on what that element would be because I, I try to cater my designs to each company so that it doesn't feel like, you know, like a cookie cutter look. But I do have, like, a, a tendency and almost like a tagline of, like, helping startups grow up where I kind of take them to the next level after they're past that like dorm look, that dorm phase. And it's my aesthetic is more minimal and I try to kind of be more intentional with how I use color. So I'd like to think those are kind of my, my, my design calling. And you would talked earlier about, you know, we, where things have come from the early 2000s to now and you know some of the you know reasons for those changes but where do you see it going over the next 2 years and where you know since you're at the forefront of of this design and the, the next wave of startups where are you trying to guide people to and where the things are going yeah i'm just i'm trying to um have people be more aware of how their company can function best and not necessarily go with the trend of like the open office So, and I'm finding that a lot of design firms and uh, a lot of people within the design world are kind of moving towards the same. Um, You have co-working spaces that are, you know, there's a reason why they're so trendy and why they work so well. And it's because they, they do that balancing act that we discussed earlier of having work surfaces versus places to work away from their desk and also having, um, scenarios where they are where there's kind of like these work these tertiary groupings that are within teams so that's kind of like another way of designing a space have like that is that balancing act but also like kind of more of a granular level great i mean this is this has been super interesting for me because you know i came from a, a far different world than the startup world before i got into startups so to hear about how people think about it is is really you know refreshing to think about how you're creating spaces you know for for people and and making their lives happier and more productive uh, coming up you'll hear danny share a little bit more about her personal journey we'll be right back
The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MouthMediaSen, that's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N, at checkout. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag MouthMedia. Plus, check out all of the MouthMedia Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Danny, we ask all of our guests uh, in the final segment uh, more personal questions to understand you, know, you as a human being, you know, above and beyond just you know, your, your domain expertise. And uh, you know, I'm going to kick it to, to Scott to, to lead the questions. So I'm curious how you found yourself in this, this unique world of kind of startup design. So like, where, did you, where did you get your start? Was it in school, somewhere before that? And how did you find yourself on this path? Sure. I mean, I I have my master's from Pratt Institute, interior design architecture. I always call it interior design slash architecture because the program there is very much technically based and it's essentially run like an architecture program, except for it's for interiors. Um, and so it's a very profound way of thinking about design. And I think it's helped guide me in how I process my design. Um, but yeah, essentially I graduated in 2009 where there were zero jobs and, you know, I went on Craigslist a lot. Looking... Were you looking to be an architect or looking to be a designer? What oh, you... interior design. Interior design. Always interior design. So, you know, it took me like a year to find something. Mm-hmm. And, um, I actually had the pleasure of working with Rita Koenig, who's an amazing interior designer. And, uh, she was an editor at Domino Magazine. Um, but I always had an ambition to kind of work on my own. So even when I was working with her, I, I ended up going to Tony Chi, which is a super high end residential or sorry, hospitality firm. I was always on Craigslist, like, you know, looking for potential projects that I can kind of do off on the side. Mm -hmm. And so it just happened that the first project that I landed was like startup. Mm. And so, um, which startup was that? A code Academy. Oh, cool. Yeah. And actually I'm working with them again. And they're in the, will be in Soho, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like the idea that startups have this culture of meetups and town halls and where founders meet with each other and they kind of share each other's spaces and talk about issues. So I knew if I did a really good job that, you know, this could be a potential way to get more business for me. Yeah. And so it kind of just snowballed, you know. And um, it just kind of just like, who did your space? Like, Danny Arps did your space. And, you know, just kind yeah. of kept, you know, referrals are basically my my main stream of business, I would say. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And earlier you were talking about people being productive in, in different spaces, you know, that you design. Where do you find you're most productive when you're working? Where am I most productive? Um in between my home and my office and it depends on what project I'm working on but I get I have and I get a lot of work done when I'm alone and I just have like kind of spurts of focus for like maybe 
three hours. And it's just like I could be juggling with an idea in my head for for days. And then I, it, it'll seem like I'm not getting any work done, but I'm actually just kind of like figuring out in my head the best way to move forward. And then I will just kind of like get so much done within like four hours. And um, but it's just like those kind of alone moments where I'm just have like a quiet moment to myself where I can just kind of head down, headphones on and just kind of like do eight renditions of a floor plan in in one setting. And what was the space like when you grew up? Like what was your, your first home or wherever you lived? And, and, and did that kind of give you a sense of how you like to use space and how you think others use their space? I think so. I mean, I... I I sh- I have two siblings and we would share space when we were younger. So I had my own private little like bookshelf that I just kind of held to myself cuz cuz it was really like my only space that was just like me. And so I would just kind of like style it all the time and I just kind of had a sense of space that maybe was different from people who had their own like private bedrooms when they were a kid. So I just kind of knew how or maybe had a, a magnified view of how space could really affect how you were and maybe that's kind of where I got my pull because I actually was going to be a musician and an artist like I went to school my undergrad I got a bachelor's in arts and a minor in in music and I was initially going to go to Berkeley College of Music in Boston yeah and then my dad was like uh you need to do more things (laughs) (laughs) I was like what what kind of musician were you I play bass no kidding Mm -hmm. cool and so that was a career track that you had in in mind, but yeah, you're for, steered for my entire way. high school. Okay. For, yeah. well, what? So, did you say your dad kind of pushed you in different directions? Yeah, he was just like, I think you need to do something that's that gives you more options. And at the time, I was kind of like, that's so annoying. But I'm actually very glad that he he thought that way because I, I'm very happy with where I am now, and I'm trying to get back into my music. So it's just like everything's kind of coming full circle. So is that like, like the stand up boom boom boom, or like a the guitar electric, electric bass. bass? Yeah, the electric bass. Very yeah, cool. but yeah. I do play jazz bass. Do you play in a band? No, but my friend, who's an amazing musician, said I could play with her this year, so I'm really excited yeah, about that's that. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. As it relates to music, uh, what are what are the you know most common artists you're listening to right now on Spotify or whatever music player you use? Um, who am I listening to? I'm kind of listening to very, like I go through phases of things that I listen to right now. I'm very much into, like, um. What is it called? It's like, I don't want to say it's um, dance hall, but it is, yes, dance hall. Because, like, I need music to feel a little bit upbeat when I'm working. And I, like, dance hall music has, like, a very strong rhythm to it. Um, but there are also kind of, like, syncopated rhythms in there, which kind of, like, speak to jazz a little bit. Um, but I also love some more, like, current music. Who am I listening to right now? Um, actually on the way here, I was listening to Erica Badu. So it's just like, it's just like depends on my mood, but yeah. when, when you're designing spaces, do you keep that in mind of like the common areas that people are working in? Do you incorporate music or sound, uh, into your designs? Well, I guess it depends. Um, but I always try to kind of, uh, let people know the importance of, music in a space if it if it makes sense for their company culture because like you know everybody has such different tastes 
But usually when it's an event space, I like to recommend vendors who kind of really know how to go all out and make sure it's like a very well-rounded experience. Um, but yeah, music is, is something that's super personal. Do you think that music and your knowledge of it, your love of it has kind of flavored the way you design? And are you different because of your background in music than a designer who doesn't necessarily have that same kind of a background? Maybe, but honestly, they're, I feel like they're not so different in how you approach music, how you approach design, how you approach artwork. I think they're all very much related. Um, like people have to understand that like writing and composing music is very technical. It's very math based. Um, but so is design, especially when you're, when you're putting together construction documentation, it's very math based. Architecture is extremely math based. So it's just like, it's maybe a way that you think a way that you think in how you approach whatever, whatever skill you're applying to. But I think it's a very similar way. It's interesting that both, you know, all, all the experience you've had, as you said, kind of math based, but lead to creative outcomes with that kind of technical underpinning to it. Mm -hmm. So I can see there being a connection between being a great musician or someone who appreciates it at all levels and a great designer and someone who appreciates that from a, you know, it's a beautiful output, but it relies on very precise mm -hmm. mathematical connections between everything. Mm -hmm. That's very correct. <laughs> I had one last, one last question. Uh, as you now become a, a role model for, for other designers, who was your key role model um, as you were studying and, and starting out in interior design? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't, the thing is like, I have designers who I've always looked up to. Um, I would say that, I mean, David Ajay, who is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's like, he would, what <laughs> he's what the industry would call a star architect, like Frank Gehry, you know, on that level. Um, and he is Ghanaian and he lives in, he's from London of Ghanaian descent. And it's just like, I always appreciated very much how he thought about design and he works with artists. And that's part of his process is that he um, collaborates with them and kind of thinks about architecture in a different way. So I, I love his designs. He's more current. Um, but I also loved Stephen Hall. He, I loved how his renderings, his conceptual renderings before he would design a space, they looked, they were watercolor. And that was something that I actually focused on in undergrad as part of my thesis. But it's just like, I felt a connection in how he rendered his spaces before they actually became real. Interesting. And uh, we, we'd like to give all of our guests a, a moment for a, a final thought. Um, what would you like to share with uh, our listeners? Um, my final thought, I would say that find a, I don't know, I guess whatever you are passionate about, make sure that you have, I don't know, like a, like a direction or a way of getting there. That's something that's, that's achievable, I guess. Um, I always had in mind of where I wanted to go. And, and so far I think I've 
been able to to get there but it's always just like once I set a goal I always have another goal in mind so that you're always kind of growing um I don't think I'd ever want to be at a place where I thought that I was like done in my career but I feel like there's so much more that I could learn I don't I think for the idea for people to think that I'm a role model is kind of just like insane because I feel like there's so much I don't know like I feel like I'm very much a student so um I'd I guess I would say just like always keep your mind open and uh, willing to learn and grow whatever profession you choose. And how can people connect with you and your company? Sure. Um, You can go to my website, which is dannyarps.com or my Instagram, which is at dannyarps or Twitter, which is the same handle. Great. Um, this is this has been a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing a you know a different viewpoint on on real estate than uh, our listeners have been accustomed <laughs> to so far. Uh, so it's been very very refreshing and interesting conversation. And uh, you know, thanks to everyone for listening as always, and for Scott. Bye everyone. And I'm Tom, and this is Real Estate Is Your Business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.